0: I'm the producer of A Public Affair, Jade Siri Ramos. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll consider supporting the station. We take donations all year long at WORTFM.org. Thanks.
1: Hello, and welcome to A Public Affair. My name is Nate Carlin, and I'll be your host for this hour. Our guest today is Daniel Jaffe, an associate professor of sociology at Portland State University. He has a new book out called Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and For Water Justice. As an added bonus, Daniel used to live in southern Wisconsin and was a former host of A Public Affair many moons ago. This is a pre-recorded interview, and as such, we will not be able to take callers for this hour. We'll start with the, the big picture stuff. What is plastic water and why does it matter?
0: Well, uh, so I I start out the the book with kind of a a confession that I am old enough to remember a time uh, in my childhood going to grade school when there uh, essentially was no such thing as the commodity of plastic packaged water, um, individual single serving packaged water. When I was going to grade school in the 1980s, in 1980, Americans consumed two gallons per capita per year on average. And it was essentially an odd luxury product, right? It was Perrier and those heavy glass bottles. um, And over the course of just over four decades, bottled water. And, you know, through its transformation, the the key technological transformation was kind of the advent of lightweight PET plastic and its adoption by the industry, especially in the 1990s. Really, that was the explosive decade where the, the industry grew and consolidated. And we have Fast forward to today, where we've essentially four, four plus decades later, uh, Americans are consuming 47 gallons of bottled water per capita or, per year. And 70 plus percent of that is in single serving containers, and almost all of it is in PET plastic bottles. And um, I look into sort of both the causes for that meteoric growth and the environmental, social, and cultural consequences, the impacts of the widespread diffusion and the normalization of private plastic packaged water across society and the paradoxes that really get raised in places where uh, public tap water is overwhelmingly um, high quality, nearly universal, uh, runs 24-7, a privilege that many parts of the world don't have, And, and yet the public in the U.S. has increasingly walked away from uh, from the tap uh, to the point where nearly 9 in 10 people in the U.S. consume some bottled water. And really st- stunningly, 1 in 5 now, um, people in the U.S., 20% of the population, now gets all of its plain drinking water from a bottle. They shun the tap completely for drinking. And concerningly, that number is up from 13% of the population just not even a decade ago. So um, those are some of the... The questions I look into and the thing that surprised me the most as I did the research for this book was to, to learn how bottled water is you know, not just this sort of controversial product, arguably unnecessary in many cases with a lot of negative environmental impacts that many folks are well aware of, but it's also deeply connected to really the social justice crisis of uneven access to safe and affordable water, uh, both here at home in, in the U.S. and then worldwide, <clears throat> and that um, growing dependence and growing spending on bottled water turns out to be widening or exacerbating really already huge economic and racial inequalities between what you might call the clean water haves and the clean water have-nots.
1: Yeah, I mean, that uh, uh, does kind of feed into the question of, of who, who is drinking plastic water and, and why?
0: Yeah, that's such an important question, and uh, the answer is a bit non-intuitive. If I asked you, you know, who you would think consumes the most bottled water, you might say, oh, you know, middle class, upper middle class people, folks who've got a bit of disposable income, it's redundant to the tap water, but they might drink it for convenience, or they might drink it because of you know societal expectations. And if and that was likely true in, in bottled water's early decades, early years, certainly probably in the 1990s, but if it was true, it is no longer the case. And a whole raft of academic studies and public opinion polls now make it incontrovertibly clear that the people who consume bottled water the most, at least in the US, are low income people and overwhelmingly communities of color, black and Latino, Latina adults uh, and their families. And um, those social groups are the same people Um, who expressed the highest levels of distrust in the quality and the safety of their tap water. For example, a recent Gallup poll found that 76% of black families and 70% of Hispanic adults said they worried a great deal about the safety of their tap water compared to only 48% of white adults. And the similar numbers showed up when you looked at income. Uh, People who made under $30,000 a year were much more concerned about tap water safety than those who were earning over $75,000. And that disparity in spending is, is really quite significant. It seems across a number of studies and a number of opinion polls that um, communities of color and low-income families are spending roughly twice as much per month or per year on to buy bottled water or package water, and that's about a double the share of their household income overall. Now, one study found that 1% of household income was being dedicated to bottled water in um, Black and Latino families compared to just 0.4% of household income for white families that might sound like not very much but some of the poorest families in in these studies were were spending up to 12 to 16% of entire household income just to purchase bottled water and one more statistic that i think really dramatizes the problem these problems this this disparity in which privileged and white and and also asian american households are increasingly turning back to tap water, uh, or, or, and certainly not increasing their bottled water consumption, whereas uh, communities of color and low-income families are dramatically increasing it, gotten to the point where one study, uh, actually using data from before the Flint crisis, found that bottled water constituted 50 per, 57% of total plain drinking water consumption by volume among Black and, and Latino adults, compared to only 30% of the total plain water volume, for white adults so that the, the disparities are really dramatic and I think it's critical to underline here that what I am not saying is that uh, people are somehow misinterpreting uh, information about the safety of their tap water because we have an uneven distribution not just of distrust in that tap water but of risks and threats to the quality of tap water so you know as I started out at the beginning saying overwhelmingly the the great majority, the vast majority of U.S. public tap water is uh, still quite safe to drink, meets all federal uh, safety standards under the Safe Drinking Water Act. Only something like 7 to 8% of public water systems in any given year in the U.S. have even one health-related violation of those safety regulations, and a lot of those are, are, are remedied pretty quickly. But the communities with the recurring problems tend to be concentrated in exactly those places, those communities that I was just describing. Low-income, uh, predominantly communities of color, uh, often rural, and especially very small water systems. And these are the places where um, the, the, the entrenched problems are located. And so I think, you know, rather than talk about misperceptions, I think we can say that those families and those structurally disadvantaged communities are maybe making a rational or a logical reading of what they understand to be the distribution of risk, and they um, and those greater fears are leading them to abandon or shun the tap. Now, to nuance it a little bit, it's true that if you know twenty percent of the population is shunning the tap entirely and never touching tap water to drink, and only seven to eight percent of water systems ever, even once in any given year, have a violation, clearly some people are opting to walk away from water that is in, indeed you know, relatively safe to drink or very safe to drink. But I think we're not doing ourselves any favor to focus on, um, on the mismatch there, but rather to understand that only by restoring the ability of, of tap water systems, public water systems across the country um, to provide reliably safe uh, drinking water all the time, can we sort of break that that cycle of distrust. and. The one last thing I'll inject in here is the historical background, which is that we in the US have had about a almost a 50-year, five-decade process of federal disinvestment in our public water systems, right? Since the late 70s, um, the federal spending on, on supporting drinking water systems has fallen by nearly 80% when you adjust for inflation. And that is dramatic. And so that fiscal pl- pain has been pushed down. The burden has been pushed down onto cities and onto states. And, you know, a lot of them have done their really fabulous job in sort of patching up the the holes and and pulling together budgets. Um, It was one dramatic reason why uh, water bills have risen precipitously in the United States over the past, especially over the past decade or two, to the point where they're unaffordable for an increasing percentage of the population. So local city governments and public utilities are are making up the difference by increasing water rates, but that's unsustainable. Only, I think, by reinvesting substantially at the federal level can we sort of stop that disinvestment trend, bring systems back up to, to snuff, and once again pro- provide reliably safe tap water so that the, the cause for that fear uh, is then diminished.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT. Today we're with Daniel Jaffe discussing his book Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and For Water Justice. This is a pre-recorded interview, so we will not be able to take calls. Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll definitely circle back to some of this discussion in the United States. But I did want to touch on, early in your book, you sort of talk about how plastic water is used in the global south. And I wanted to get your idea on on how similar are those uses between how we approach it here in the United States. While the dramatic spread of bottled water across society in the global
0: north and wealthy nations... Um, raises one set of questions really you know perplexing questions and and poses a lot of riddles and paradoxes. The questions are in many ways substantially different when you're looking at its role in in many parts of the global south. I don't want to you know overdraw the generalization here uh, but uh, places where tap water systems uh, pipe water systems either do not reach large percentages of the population uh, because governments either due to colonial legacies or, You know, austerity or conditions attached to their debt simply have do not have the resources to extend those systems to meet, you know, the needs of growing or urbanizing populations. Those questions are different because, in many cases, even where pipe water systems do exist, um, governments have been unable uh, or have lost the ability to provide reliably safe. And potable water, or the water does not flow consistently, which raises a whole slew of questions, which I'll get to in a second. And in those contexts, I think we have to sort of acknowledge that what is happening is the um, the packaged water industry or the bottled water industry, uh, in its many forms, is stepping in to fill that that gap, that gap uh, left either by you know state inability or government's you know, inability or unwillingness. Uh, to provide safe water to large percentages of the population. And that raises, I think, a different set of questions and provides some really important, I think, and, and thought-provoking parallels to the communities in the U.S. that I was just describing a little bit earlier who are sort of disproportionately affected by threats to safe tap water or feel, you know, often justifiably that there, that there are threats to their tap water. And the thing that unites those two contexts is dependency on private packaged water. People day after day are finding that they have no alter in these settings. Are finding that you know they have no alternative in many cases other than purchase packaged water in some form or other, or you know, drink from contaminated water, surface water, well water, etc., or you know go without. And um, and that dependency, I have come to believe that there's there is a lot of uh, value in focusing on that issue of dependency. Uh, long-term dependency in particular, on private bottled water, private packaged water, because I think whenever we see dependency situations of dependency, whether it's in Flint, Michigan, or Jackson, Mississippi, or in rural communities in the Central Valley in California that have um, contaminated groundwater and um, don't have access to um, safe water systems and therefore buy packaged water day after day, year after year, or a context in, say, the Global South, that's really a, a red flag, uh, a marker I think, of water injustice. It's a sign telling us that the human right to safe drinking water, which is actually a right that was codified by the United Nations back only back in 2010, um, but it is defined as a human right, um, that that right to safe water, that right to, to water is not being honored, is, is being abridged. I think there's one other parallel, which is that in these settings, be it structurally disadvantaged communities here at home in the U.S., um, indigenous communities, communities of color, low-income communities, or parts of the global south, that um, there's another dynamic, which is that this continued growth of bottled water dependence on it leads, I think, to a situation where it, it allows governments, it allows local officials, many of them cash strapped, many of them unable really to pony up the resources for a variety of reasons, um, removes that perceived urgency or the political impetus or pressure to fix those problems pull the lead-laden pipes out of the ground or expand public drinking water systems uh, because uh, they can sort of point to the available uh, alternative, the private market-delivered alternative. And um, something that really fascinating that's sort of an indicator of this problem is that this kind of debate, right? The industry, and I should say that the bottled water industry says it is part of the solution because it is providing that Alternative, they frame it as a sort of a medium term alternative in the global South, for example, um, until governments are able to build out these systems and, and provide safe water. But the the debates, over, you know, so they, they say it does have an important role to play. Um, then debates over whether it should be part of the solution to the lack, to the crisis of the lack of safe drinking water in many parts of the world has sort of made its way up to the level of international bodies and in the United Nations. And I read in the book that uh, a, in 2017, a little known, but I think controversial decision was made within the UN, within a body of the UN. People might be familiar with the sustainable development goals, this sort of set of 16 uh, benchmarks that nations of the world are sort of governments are trying to, to reach. And one of those 16 goals is goal six, um, to provide, increase the, the percentage of the population that has access to safe drinking water, to increase it dramatically. And, um, you know, governments are, are sort of rated each year on their progress toward these goals. And in 2017, the UN, a body of the UN redefined packaged and bottled water as a quote unquote improved water source for the purposes of governments meeting their obligations under the SDGs to provide safe water. Um, As I say, it sort of flew under the radar and the uh, UN agency and the World Health Organization have responded that, you know, this essentially doesn't change the statistics And that, in some ways, you could you could argue it's just a ratification or an acknowledgement of what's going on on the ground, where where packaged water really is providing um, the only potable water source for many, many hundreds of millions, if not billions, of people at this point. Um, But critics uh, have really assailed this decision as essentially granting governments an escape clause, essentially giving them a permission slip. To um, to escape their obligation to um, actually extend public water systems to meet the needs of populations, and the fear is that this is either a reflection of the bottled water or packaged water industry's power, or um, simply a kind of a, a resignation, uh, an acceptance of the of the sort of the current state of affairs. Um, but the SDGs, you know, to the extent they have any kind of mobilizing or convening power, they are aspirational. They should be aspirational. And I think it's a very concerning development.
1: Yeah. Uh, one of the things that came through in your book was, was how linked this sort of idea of plastic water is to the logics of austerity and sort of it's odd to see it held up as an alternative to, to tap water when it's less long-term, sustainable, and also more expensive over time. Yes.
0: Well, and I think the, that the cost is a really important thing to mention, and I haven't talked about it much. Um, this is a substance that costs between hundreds and thousands of times more per gallon than uh, tap water. When tap water is delivered, uh, at least in the U.S., the, the average cost for providing a gallon of tap water is something like half of a U.S. cent. Uh, maybe in some place it's one cent. Right. And that is so it is essentially a a microscopic fraction of the cost of that gallon of water via bottled water. I did the math uh, in the book for my nearest mainstream grocery store, uh, Fred Meyer, here last year and calculated that if a family of four consumed the average US per capita volume consumption of bottled water, which was 47 gallons per person. And I looked at a variety of brands from, you know, the, the big name brands, the uh, the big four brands, Coke, Pepsi, Dannon, Nestle, and, and the brands that they own, uh, all the way down to sort of a cheap store brand uh, of water. And the, um, the resulting figures ran between 256, I think it was, dollars per year to um, something close to $2,700 per year just to provide that, um, that annual consumption. Compared to the cost of tap water, 47 gallons uh, cost a grand total of 96 cents less than one U.S. dollar for that family of four. You know, you might say $256, not all that much. Uh, Yeah, if you're earning only $25,000, it might be. Uh, But the other thing is that, um, you know, for many families in communities uh, where they are um, either feel or know or are concerned that their tap water is unsafe to drink um, or for whatever reason, uh, if people are using uh, bottled water to meet all of their drinking and cooking needs or other household needs, then we are um, definitively talking into the thousands of dollars. And um, across the world, both in the U.S. and internationally, there's a, there's a pattern that shows up in, in academic studies, which is that um, the poorest swath of people, the poorest 20% to 40%, um, let's just focus on the bottom, the bottom fifth, the poorest fifth of people, um, are spending uh, increasingly really significant percentages of household income to acquire water. Um, and very often, certainly here in the U.S. and in many parts of the global South, but in all these settings, uh, the poorest sort of 20 to 10% of the population is spending really significant portions to acquire both packaged water for drinking and cooking and also paying household water bills. And that those household water bills, I should circle back, that 50-year trend of federal disinvestment and the Putting the, the fiscal responsibility onto cities and states has resulted in, and many folks may have read about this, an increasing affordability um, crisis of, of water bills in the United States. It's actually water and sewer bills combined, um, but many people just pay it in one combined bill, so they they think of it as the water bill. Uh, and you know, here in Portland, uh, Oregon, we have had our water bills probably double in the in the fifteen years, uh, more than double in the fifteen years that I've. That I've lived here. And um, and it, they have become increasingly unaffordable for many families to the point where um, the Guardian and Consumer Reports have done some really excellent reporting on this over the past few years, uh, to the point where, in, according to their research, in many U.S. cities, up to 40% of the population cannot afford to pay their water bills, their water and sewer bills. Um, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, has a benchmark, a, a guideline, a threshold which says that families should not be spending more than 4.5% of household income on combined water and sewer bills. Uh, and one academic study showed that uh, across the U.S., as of, I believe it was 2020 figures, low-income families were spending an average of 12.6% of household income on water and sewer bills. And then when you consider that many of those families are are, are possibly or maybe even likely also consuming bottle and package water on top of that, uh, it becomes a real question of economic injustice. And to sort of close the circle, not only are we seeing a crisis of water unaffordability, but when people get behind on their water bills and they accumulate water debt, we're seeing widespread utility shutoffs. Utilities, public utilities, right? 85% of people in the U.S. get their water from a public local government utility. But many of these utilities are acting like and for-profit businesses and and they are they have policies of shutting off uh, people for your non-payment of bills that can sometimes be as little as a hundred or 150 dollars having your water shut off is a really shocking and unconscionable act I would say I, I think it, it, it should it should be socially it should be unacceptable to ever completely cut off a family's water supply you can think of it as a penalty for poverty really uh, talk about um, a violation of the human right to water um, when people are unable economically to pay water bills and water services shut off, um, there are several consequences. I mean, first of all, immediate water insecurity. In 21 states in the US, the lack of running water in the home can be considered as evidence of of child abuse for the purposes of child and family services, uh, removing children from the home. I'm not saying it happens in all cases, but it can be considered. That is uh, a terrible, terrible consequence. People have had in many places, I mean, Detroit was the sort of the, the most dramatic example uh, something like 100,000 households have been cut off uh, of their water supply in Detroit. And the figure is actually higher, but there are households with multiple cutoffs over the years. Some of them pay their back bills and get reconnected. But to have that water supply cutoff means people have to look for other alternative sources. And in some cases, people are depending then on the far more costly alternative of plastic packaged water, um, simply because they do not have running water in their house anymore, and they might not be able to pull together the money to pay that back bill. And that, I think, is a double injustice. Really unconscionable should not be allowed to happen. And there was some reporting done on this. The Guardian did a piece looking at the situation in Detroit, where where is the water that people are consuming coming from? We haven't talked yet about the fact that nearly two-thirds of the bottled water sold in the U.S. comes not from those pristine springs or mountain lakes that you see on the, on the label, but actually from Taken just from municipal tap water, extracted from public systems, refiltered. (laughs) The families in Detroit who were being cut off for water bills, debt of at least unpaid water bill debt of as low as $150, were turning to packaged water taken, I believe it was either Dasani or Aquafina, uh, from the Detroit municipal water system that they had just been cut off from, but were paying hundreds to thousands of times more per gallon for that water. So we have. A, a, just a, a tragic situation of a perfect storm, really, of um, tap water unaffordability, disinvestment and austerity threatening the, the quality and safety of that tap water for certain communities, uh, communities of color, largely and low-income communities and some rural communities. Private commodity of plastic packaged water, and I think that the threat and the fear—you know—many folks have followed battles over privatization around the world and of, of different, you know, services. Big battles over water utility privatization were very visible in the 1990s and 2000s. Folks might remember the, the water wars in Bolivia, Cochabamba, and others where uh, water systems were contracted out to private management. Water rates rose, and uh, the population sort of rose up in and, 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 and response. And, and many of those privatization contracts for public water systems have ended. Um, there's been a counter-trend, a, a, a re-municipalization trend around the world, one, because of public opposition, two, because those private utility companies uh, see a lot of risk, and, um, and and third, because profits have just not been high enough to sort of meet the needs of or the demands of investors. And what I say in the book is it actually it turns out that while that facet of water privatization has sort of run into headwinds and is moving more slowly than many expected, the other facet of drinking water, privatization or commodification, the, the product of, of package water in its very many different forms around the world, is moving much more quickly. It's growing faster, it's moving more steadily. And I think we really need to keep our eye on that because I think it's fairly clear that within 10 to 20 years, that we, that the bottle and package water industry worldwide will be larger than the private water services industry. Right now, the bottled water industry is something like $300, $320 billion 320000000000 dollars globally the package the private water services industry it's hard to get good stats right now but it's probably in the five to six hundred billion dollar range uh, but it will be surpassed um, I believe um, in, in fairly short order by the, the packaged water market and the fear obviously you know this we know and there's been a lot of great reporting done in the past couple of years on the ways that due to climate change due to over-extraction by industry and agriculture over pumping, Pollution, the available clean, fresh water worldwide is, is diminishing dramatically. Um, and the fear, of course, is that when a good, a service, a substance that's essential for life is provided mainly by the market for profit, or in some cases entirely by the market for profit, that access to that substance is going to be based on the ability to pay. And many inevitably will go without whatever that good or substance is. And in the case of clean water, essential for life, unsubstitutable, that can be deadly. And so that is the concern around becoming dependent on the market for the provision of this life-sustaining
1: substance. Today on A Public Affair, we're with Daniel Jaffe, a professor at Portland State University. He has a new book, Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and For Water Justice. This is a pre-recorded interview, so we'll not be able to take calls. Uh, I want to get to solutions because I I know you want to talk about that, but you you kind of alluded to this idea of commodification and then the response of decommodification. Can you give me just like a a quick definition of what does commodification of water look like and what, what does decommodification look like? Right.
0: I should probably start out by saying that this term of commodification May be of less concern or less interest to many, particularly you know folks who are sort of out in the out in the trenches, you know, fighting these battles. And and I acknowledge that for many activists and for many communities, that the word privatization is what is used to sort of capture the idea of the market uh, taking over control of the provision of a substance like water. But there are interesting discussions and debates around kind of the boundaries between. Commodification and privatization and how they differ. Um, I like to think of privatization as a process by which services or substances or assets or land or businesses or tangible things are sort of moved from the public sector, from being provided by government to being provided by the market. And you know, since the nineteen late nineteen seventies around the world under neoliberal policies, neoliberal globalization, that has been the recipe for governments, especially governments in the global South, who've in many cases been obligated, forced to privatize, sell off large parts of what was formerly a very substantial state-owned public sector capacity, whether it was state-owned airlines, mines, oil companies, railways and also you know, ele- the provision of basic services, electricity, water, phone, et cetera. Governments around the Global South are sort of obligated by conditions attached to the renegotiation of their loans to sell off these, these state-owned enterprises to uh, the private sector, often at sort of fire sale terms, really disadvantageous terms, right? So that is privatization. And I think privatization can be thought of as one, facet, an important facet, but one facet of this sort of broader process of commodification, which is converting substances, land, goods, uh, intangible things, knowledge, genes, uh, information, et cetera, um, either from what many people term the commons, right, Uh, out there in a common pool, the ability to access it, enclosing it, and being able to derive profit from it bringing it from either the commons or the public sector into private or market control and so you know if we're getting down into the weeds and some folks are interested in these debates or these discussions i think i think privatization of the of the flavor that i described privatizing water systems you know in countries around the world that's a subset of a broader process of commodification and and you know the kind of classic definition of commodity at least, you know, if you're a sociologist, is a good produced for sale in the market. And you know, um, I went and did my graduate studies at at UW Madison. And um, for aficionados of these discussions, you know, one of the people whose ideas were really important and influential to me in in, in thinking about this was a guy named Karl Polanyi, a Hungarian uh, economic uh, historian, really economic anthropologist, if, if you will, and writing in the 1940s and sort of talked about its book, this famous book, The Great Transformation, and talked about what he called the fictitious commodities of land, labor, and money. And, And I'm just going to talk about land and land is really nature. He said, this is a fictitious commodity because it's not produced for sale in the market. And yet it's treated as if it were a genuine commodity. And that the consequences of treating nature or treating human labor as if it were an ordinary commodity, are dire, are devastating to um, human beings and to the natural world. And, you know, he was writing about what happened during the Industrial Revolution and talked in the 1940s about kind of the counter reaction to that, which was the rise of welfare states and unions and civil society and how it essentially protected the, those fictitious commodities against complete commodification um, while allowing real commodities to sort of expand. Um, and I think it's really interesting. The reason that a lot of people have gotten reinterested in Polanyi's ideas um, since, you know, maybe the turn of the century is because under this era of neoliberal globalization, we're once again seeing kind of a a, a re-commodification of those, of those very things, right? And so that's where water f- fits into this. I mean all these things we talked about, privatization of public water systems around the world, um, the rise of packaged water. this has all happened since the 19, since you know, late 1980s essentially and, um, and they are of a piece.
1: Yeah, so well, let's turn now to I feel like the, the lion's share of your book are stories of, of successful resistances to water or, or just even just responses to plastic water. What, what are some of these the successes in rolling back, the logics of of plastic water.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you asked. I mean, that's kind of the heart of the book is the pushback. And, you know, while the growth, this, you know, growth of bottled water and packaged water around the world might seem kind of inexorable or might seem unstoppable, um, it actually turns out that's not the case. Movements. Challenging, thus the growth and the spread of bottled water and packaged water are actually (laughs) succeeding in many places. I I was surprised, actually, as I got into the research for this book, at how hopeful I I found myself becoming around the kind of the outcomes of some of these struggles and the trends and where things are heading. So, you know, one set of issues that I that I look at sort of two facets of the movement uh, of these movements. I actually start one chapter with a history of of the five key organizations in North America that have kind of led resistance to bottled water since really the turn of the 21st century, two in Canada, three in the U.S., and kind of the history of that. And, but then I look at the actual sort of pushback movements themselves on the ground, and I, I kind of see, think of them in two different groups. One is what's happening at the places where the water is being extracted. So I mentioned that just over a third of bottled water in the U.S., uh, and a lot more actually in Canada um, comes from groundwater, from springs, from wells and other forms of groundwater. And, you know, almost two thirds in the U.S. is coming from tap water systems. But the these kinds of resistance movements that are happening at the sites where the industry, bottled water industry, either is extracting spring water or groundwater or wants to do it or wants to expand, there's a very particular kind of of movements that emerges. And actually, Wisconsin was the sort of ground zero for one of those back at the very beginning of the 21st century. I think it was near Wisconsin Dells, in fact, when Nestle uh, was attempting to establish a groundwater extraction uh, and bottling plant. A big fight, big fight led, I know many, many folks in that were interviewed on WORT in those years. And um, the outcome to cut to the chase is that uh, they were They were not successful in establishing um, uh, that bottled water uh, extraction plant, and they moved across Lake Michigan over to Michigan, uh, where they were eventually able to situate their plant in, in a couple of places in Western Michigan. I look in the book at two sort of deep case studies. One is here in Oregon, in the Columbia River Gorge, where... Uh, same company, Nestle at the time was the, the world's largest bottled water company and the, the largest in the U.S. and Canada. it was attempting to do something similar, had not situated a, a bottle water plant anywhere in the Pacific Northwest and was sort of on a hunt uh, looking at various communities in California, Northern California, Washington, and Oregon, a lot of them unsuccessfully and eventually settled on a, a small, uh, economically hard hit community called Cascade Locks. And in the Columbia River Gorge east of Portland and spent essentially a decade trying to get its plant established. And you know, to sort of take, make a long story short, um, they eventually were not successful, but it, what it took was a grassroots coalition, but statewide organizations got involved, um, Food and Water Watch was involved, environmental groups, forest groups, but eventually um, there was the emergence of a grassroots coalition, fascinating set of allies between local business people, Local farmers in in an area with a big uh, fruit tree production, the Hood River Valley, enviros, greens, uh, and critically, indigenous activists, and then eventually the role of the four Columbia River tribes exercising concerns about their treaty rights and their sovereignty and the impact, potential impact on salmon fisheries, their treaty-protected access to salmon, It culminated in a ballot measure in 2016 where voters by a 69% margin uh, voted to ban water bottling in the entire county. And then it took another year and a half for the the sort of really end. And then I'll spend much less time mentioning the second story is in southern Ontario, Canada, a bit closer to you all, uh, where Nestle as well. Um, had existing bottling plants, has exi- has existing bottling plants, uh, the largest bottled water facility in Canada, and was attempting to expand production. And their somewhat similar coalition, including importantly First Nations, Indigenous activists, and traditional uh, leadership from a, a, fir- a nearby First Nation, uh, have really made this into the most high-profile struggle in Canada around water extraction, and were successful in blocking expansion of that water taking that and other things led in 2021 led Nestle to decide to sell off its North American bottled water holdings to a private equity venture called blue Triton, which is now operating all those those spring water brands and bottling plants today. So that's one facet of it. The second facet, and I think the one that might touch more people is what I sort of lump together and call the reclaiming the tap facet of the opposition. And that is kind of this constellation, this sort of a panoply of really diverse and interesting activities that are happening all around uh, all around the world, actually, primarily in the global north, but really increasingly in the south as well. And is essentially this, it's hard to sort of grasp in its totality, this mo- set of movements around expanding access or re-establishing access to clean tap water in public places. Uh, it's connected to this increasing popularity of refillable water bottles, reusable water bottles, and the demand increasingly for people who say we want points to fill those water bottles up in. It's tied in with climate change activism. It's tied in with movements against single-use plastics, and the totality has become quite, quite significant. You've got communities, local governments around the world building out um, networks of clean, shiny, new water fountains. You know, in places where they had either disappeared or became gross and deteriorated, reinstalling you know new shiny ones like the ones you see in airports, for example, where the counter tells you how many plastic water bottles you've you've avoided. Some of them are lead filtering, right? Dealing with that problem in public schools, in parks, in museums, and and uh, and and public buildings. But also, this this movement extends, I think, really interesting to private businesses that are increasingly joining networks identifying themselves as a refill point, saying, you can come into our business, you don't have to spend a cent, and we will let you fill up your water bottle with clean water. And we'll put a window sticker in the window, and we will locate ourselves on a phone app. And so this fascinating kind of coming together of things where you've got increasing water bottle usage, 60% of Americans now say they carry a refillable bottle or own a refillable bottle, growing number of refill points. Apps like the refill app you can download it has 300,000 refill points all around the world. So you can find your nearest point. And um, policies, critically policies that are both banning the governments looking at sort of saying, you know, hey, we provide the drinking water for this community and it's high quality. It doesn't make sense that we should be then purchasing bottled water for our staff offices to put in front of our city council members or universities banning it on university property, saying it doesn't make sense that we should be purchasing it or selling it on campus. But then the required second step is that those institutions then need to expand the availability of clean tap water in public places. And it comes along with sort of a education and promotion to kind of revalue or revalorize the quality, a high quality of that public tap water. And I think it is not an exaggeration to say that this movement has really caught on. It has caught on particularly since about 2018. The industry has taken notice. Uh, I read a lot of marketing reports. And <laughs> starting in about 2019, those marketing reports started getting, you know, they used to be like a snooze fest. You put yourself to sleep reading them. Now they're kind of perking up because the industry is extremely worried about the growth of demand for refilling and refillable bottles among young people. I read one report last week that called refillable bottles an existential threat to the packaged water market. They're especially concerned about Generation Z and Millennials, but also you know their parents. And um, it's starting to show up in the statistics. So bottled water market growth has slowed, first in some parts of Western Europe, then in the UK, and now in the US. Uh, we were having five, six, eight, 10% growth per year, with the exception of two years in the Great Recession. And then in 2022, bottled water sales in the US fell by 1%. So it's essentially only the third year in history that sales of bottled water have gone down instead of up. And while causality is a little difficult to, to establish, it's quite clear that the refilling movement is one part of it. And the, the other thing it's probably worth mentioning is, is school. Schools were a really important part of this. And um, parents or families who have kids in school, you know, have access to the PTA or the school board. This was an incredibly exciting place to sort of take action which is that um, schools, can, you know, many of them have either shut off their water fountains or provide bottled water. And um, uh, parents can get their schools to reestablish clean drinking water, refillable points. And even in places like Detroit, you know, um, they discovered lead in their school water fountains, and they shut down the water fountains in 2018. But the superintendent in Detroit was able to come up with $3 million in you know, private philanthropy. And with that, they put a new shiny lead filtering refill station in every school and gave all 50,000 students in the Detroit public schools a refillable metal water bottle. And they have reinvigorated that practice and that culture of drinking public water. And schools are places where kids essentially teach kids the way the world is, right? If kids go to school, and like many parts of the country never, ever have the experience of drinking water out of a fountain. Never have that. It's true in many places. Instead, they have these jugs or or bottles of water. Uh, We are teaching them that water comes from a bottle. If we return to filtration and, and drinking fountains and refill stations, we are teaching them that there is that public resource that they are linked to and connected to and they can participate in.
1: This is a public affair on WORT. Today, our guest is Daniel Jaffe, He's discussing his book Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and For Water Justice from the University of California Press. This is a pre-recorded interview, and we will not be able to take listener calls today. So you you kind of already alluded to this, but uh, what do you hope to see as as the future of the the water movement here, and, and how do we get there?
0: I think we're at an inflection point here in the U.S. and certainly around the global north, where you've got these trends, like I was just talking about, the back to the tap or the reclaiming the tap movement is catching on. Refilling is catching on. The industry is really running scared of that facet of the movement. They see it as an existential threat. And and that and and communities are increasingly investing in, in expanding tap water. And actually that that does extend to even some parts of the global south. I'd, I'd be remiss not to mention it. South Delhi in in India, a Maharashtra state of 100 million people, I believe, um have also passed these policies where they're banning Bottled water in uh, city government and replacing it with filtered, you know, clean tap water. So it is not exclusively a, a province of the of of the wealthy world. But the water injustice problems that I was talking about earlier are are just so real. And I think in the U.S. we've got this counter trend, which is that bottled water has you know, privileged uh, middle class, upper middle class, white and and also Asian um, people in the U.S. are, are sort of uh, drinking less, tap, uh, less bottled water and, and, and turning back to the tap, or at least not increasing their bottled water consumption. Whereas low-income folks and communities of color, because of the uneven distribution of the risks to water, are consuming more bottled water. And I don't think we are ever going to resolve this kind of vicious cycle of disinvestment, distrust, tap water avoidance, and continued deterioration unless the federal government reinvests dramatically to make, once again, our public water systems, our tap water systems, safe, reliable, and trustworthy for everyone. And there is a federal bill that people might be interested in knowing about called the WATER Act, W-A-T-E-R Act, co-sponsored by Representative Ro Khanna, I think another representative as well, has been reintroduced this year. And it would essentially create a $35 billion annual allocation to a dedicated trust fund that would reinvest in public water systems across the country, giving priority to those structurally disadvantaged communities that I was just describing. But it would go farther, it would go to everyone. It would ban water shutoffs, uh, or it would address the problem of water shutoffs and water debt. Um, a real important bill, um, it has the backing of something like 500 uh, environmental, social justice, racial justice groups. And I would love to see something like that passed at the local and state level. Well, I certainly talked about schools already. The filter first, you can look up filter first online. I'd like to see local governments around the the, the state where you are south across South Central Wisconsin could easily look into investing in expanded public drinking water infrastructure, clean, new, attractive public refill points past legislation requiring that, stu- that schools must provide. Tap water have to filter it, have to provide the resources to do that. And then I think one other interesting area is building codes. Building codes in many places have stopped requiring drinking fountains in public buildings, if you can believe it. Or in many cases, they have cut in half the number of fountains that are required in buildings. And so we're essentially Hardwiring dependence on packaged and bottled water into our buildings. And that's a really difficult state of affairs to reverse. The final, I think, one other area is um, passing income sensitive water rate programs like the ones in Philadelphia and Baltimore. They're actually models that people are not going to be paying over 4.5% of their income to get access to a life sustaining substance and forgiving water debt. The, the affordability crisis is really shocking and unconscionable. And I think outright shutoffs should be should be banned. And then beyond that, I think, you know, in terms of waste, I think we could look at uh, expanding bottle bills. You know, I know, I think Wisconsin does not have a bottle bill with deposit law. But even beyond that, I think we can really consider that in places with safe, clean tap water, we may want to look at how to end our dependence on private package water And follow the lead of a few communities around the country, a lot of them out in in New England, that are banning all sales of bottled water, even by private businesses. It's controversial, it's moving slowly, but that could be one option. Um, And, you know, I think I will just want to close by saying, you know, there's nothing inevitable about continued dependency on costly plastic bottled water. We don't have to accept living in a two-tiered, Drinking water society, we're currently relegating essentially a portion of the US population and the global population. And in the US, it's predominantly low-income and non-white people, condemning them or relegating them to, to disproportionately unsafe tap water and long-term dependency on costly bottled and packaged water for drinking and, and in many cases for cooking and other household uses. And it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to stay that way. We have the resources. Um, we have the imagination, we have the uh, we have the, the ability to do that.
1: Yeah, I guess, just to close out here, I, I feel like I'd be remiss to not talk about climate change and, and mm-hmm. the question of water scarcity. Uh, you, you have an interesting yeah. passage in your book where you talk about water scarcity and, and the competing definitions of what that is. What, mm-hmm. How does the scarcity mindset feed into the, to this issue?
0: Well, I think the industry makes its arguments for, they say... Private water industry and 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 certainly the packaged water industry, um, saying in an era of water scarcity, you need the market to allocate a scarce resource. You know, the former CEO of Nestle, Peter Brabeck, was was famous for uh, for his uh, quote where you know he said something to the effect of you know the the NGOs bang on about declaring water a public right. Uh, that means, as a human being, you should have a right to water. That's an extreme solution. And then the other view says water's a foodstuff like any other, and it should have a market value, and went on to say, I believe it's better to give a foodstuff a value so that we're aware it has its price, right? It, he later walked back some of that and said, no, okay, 1.5% of the global water supply could, could remain in public hands. But essentially, that's the argument, right, that that the, that that the market is the only entity capable of allocating a scarce resource. I already talked about the reasons why that is of concern, but I'm going to just say it again. When a good essential for life is provided mainly by the market for profit, I think that is very concerning because access to that substance is going to be based on the ability to pay and some significant percentage or even a small percentage will go without. And and that is simply an unacceptable state of affairs. And so we can understand scarcity in different ways. One other example is that the bottled water industry makes a vociferous argument that it's water taking... In the places where it's extracting groundwater is tiny, the minuscule fraction of total groundwater withdrawals. In Canada, they said we are, you know, 0.06 percent. I think of all the water takings in this particular watershed that I studied. While those numbers are likely, I don't, you know, have the the, the confirmation. But they may be true in aggregate terms and absolute terms. Those those figures are also kind of meaningless to talk about the percentage taken out of an entire state or an entire watershed. Uh, relative to the total groundwater in a watershed tells us very little. What is much, I think, more relevant uh, is what percentage of a local stream's water is being taken? What percentage of a local aquifer's water is being taken? And there we're seeing, in some cases, very significant ecological impacts um, on rivers, streams, springs, uh, household wells. Um, the folks in Michigan have, have talked about this happening uh, in the areas uh, where water pumping is happening there, and so that's another way of thinking about scarcity. But it is true. I think that that the bottled water industry, as one facet of a much broader move toward, um, you know, the enclosure or the an attempt to enclose kind of the world's remaining available high-quality fresh water, it sees an increasing era of scarcity and, you know, population growth and. Um, sees this as a, a critical and important sense of of profit for capital, and the question is, should that be allowed? And I think, in the case of a substance vital for life, we need to um, be very concerned about that kind of a future.
1: All right, yeah, uh, we're coming up on the end here. Do you do you have anything else you want to add? Anything I skipped over that you want to focus in on? I do th-
0: think that it, you know action that folks can engage in could range from the individual, you know, getting an app to find those refill points to thinking about, you know, where you might plug into local governments. There's an initiative called the Blue Communities Initiative, started out of a nonprofit in Canada, but it has now spread worldwide. And there are 77 municipalities in eight countries, plus churches and schools and universities. And they've signed on to this pretty simple program, where they passed three resolutions. One basically says we're not going to buy bottled water in city government or university administration. We are going to support the human right to water, and we are going to not allow water privatization. And I think that the Madison City Council, but not only Madison, but other communities in South Central Wisconsin could easily become the next blue community. In the US, there are only two so far, Los Angeles and Northampton, Massachusetts, but they are across Canada and in in Europe as well. That would be a really low-hanging fruit and um, just in closing, I think I'd say, you know, I used to, as I mentioned to you, I used to live in Madison uh, and, and actually, you know, even volunteered at WRT. And, and I just I think it's such an important resource. And I hope um, that people appreciate what a jewel they have there. But um, I think that I think this is a, a crucial issue. And, and we don't there is nothing inevitable about continuing to live in a costly package water world.
1: All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks, Nate. I've really enjoyed it. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you to Jade Isiri Ramos for producing this show. Thank you, Jade Davis, for engineering this show. Have a good one, everybody.
0: The big sound from pirate station.